You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I want to welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist, uh, and we're delighted to have with us uh, Dan Mullaney. Dan, welcome. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be here. Okay. Well, Dan Mullaney uh, was, until recently, the assistant U.S. trade representative for Europe, the Middle East, and some other parts of the world. Europe and the Middle East, but it covered Northern Africa, Eurasia, uh, you know, Russia, okay. U- Russia and both Russia and Ukraine. Okay. So it was a big, about 60, 64, 64 countries in that region. In okay. All, yeah. And uh, Dan, you held that position for quite a long time, about twelve years. That's uh, that's remarkable. And uh, as as a, uh, a regular visitor, uh, we, which we are proud of, to AICGS, we thought it was a good time to have a discussion. You've left the U.S. Trade Representative's office, and what are you up to these days? I am uh, riding my bike. I am working out, uh, engaging in a little bit of uh, uh, fixing delayed maintenance, house, <laughs> health, and uh, and well, uh, I'm sure it's not going to be playing some piano, uh, you know, reading books, that sort of Good. thing. Uh, well, you know, uh, just beforehand, Dan said I'm just retired, which I don't believe, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure we'll hear uh, m- more from from Dan in uh, in weeks, months, years to come. Uh, also with us today uh, is the vice president of AICGS and director of the geoeconomics program. Peter Rashish. Peter, welcome. Jeff, thanks. Good to be here. And so here we go. Um, Dan, I want to start off just by uh, talking a little bit about something called the US-EU Trade and Technology Council, which you know extremely well um, from your previous position. And um, where do you see, maybe you have the the freedom that comes with uh, no longer having an official responsibility, but where do you see the accomplishments, but more importantly, the priorities, what should the U.S. and the EU be working on um, for the foreseeable future? Yeah, no, that's a great, a great question. Um, you know, the TTC is uh, Trade and Technology Council, uh, is a great forum because it's very much focused on the cooperative efforts, things that we can do together with Europe, with including the member states, to pursue our, our common objectives. Um, it's useful to distinguish it from our previous uh, engagement with a, a, in the, you know, the, the TTIP, the, uh, the Comprehensive Trade Negotiation, where uh, the exercise was a lot about trading off our priorities against the EU's priorities. You, know, you have a big basket of issues, you trade one off against the other, and you big a move, move a big package forward. This is something where we're focusing primarily on cooperative efforts, things that we have joint objectives, we have common objectives globally, and uh, try to move the needle in a very concrete way on those efforts. So it's a, in a way, it's a very different thing from the previous effort, and then it opens up lots of opportunities for uh, uh, collaborative efforts. Should should there be something in addition to the TTC where the United States and and Europe should be focusing their efforts, or is that the sole channel for for future oriented discussions about the trade agenda? Well, that's also a really good question. I mean, I think the TTC is a wonderful as I said, cooperative mechanism. And we've done a number of very positive cooperative things together. But there are other things that are derived from disputes that are outside the TTC in which I think we have the opportunity to make some really great progress. Uh, you know, the global arrangement on steel and aluminum 
is a great example of how we can incentivize sustainable trade, market-oriented trade. It, it arises out of a disagreement between us on Section 232 tariffs, so it's in a separate channel, but it offers, ter offers tremendous opportunities. Similarly, on a large civil aircraft, uh, that, that dispute that went on for, for literally decades before yeah. we uh, uh, resolved it, at least temporarily, and we have uh, discussions ongoing about how we address the common issues that we face with respect to subsidies on lar large civil aircraft, recognizing that whatever differences there are between the United States and, and Europe on that issue are really nothing compared to the issues that we have jointly vis-a-vis uh, -vis other big players in the, in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that you know, we've had huge success in this mature relationship in the past in cabining off the disagreements that we have, because there will be disagreements, uh, and that's what Airbus-Boeing case was about and uh, some of the other disputes that, that we've had. Um, so I think it is very important to have a mechanism where we can address the disputes that we have, but also have them in a separate track, have them cabined off so that they don't infect the positive relationship, the positive cooperative efforts that we can make in the TTC. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, if, you, if one observes the nature of discussion about trade in the United States, especially here in Washington, and if you look at some of the things that are happening um, uh, elsewhere, you might reach the conclusion that globalization is over. Um, would you subscribe to that view, or is globalization just changing? Um, is globalization the wrong word when we think about uh, international web of, of economic relationships? How do you see this, Dan? Yeah, I think you're you're right that that probably the the, the word is, um, is 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 not great because it carries with it a lot of baggage about what it means. I mean, I think it's clear that we need to be engaging in trade relations. We need exchanges in trade. Uh, in goods and services, especially as the technologies advance and increasingly uh, the goods that we trade, quote unquote goods that we trade are often you know digital and 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 services uh, services based. I think um, one of the main issues is that it it may not be the case that globalization uh, or, or our, our exchanges with our uh, allies means searching the lowest cost producer in every single instance, because that produces supply chain vulnerabilities. It may be that the low-cost producer is not necessarily really the low-cost producer if you count externalities, like impact on the environment, like impact on labor rights, um, on, on other issues. So I think um, we need to think of international trade through a frame of incentivizing the right kind of trade not always superficially the cheapest trade, the cheapest product, but in maybe instances, many instances, maybe the most environmentally sound product, maybe the, the, the product that's produced uh, with, uh, with a degree of respect for, 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 for labor. Um, it may be the products that are produced with respect for, with respect to, um, a respect for rule of law, for transparency, for, for democratic values. So I think we need to throw more incentives into, uh, into the, 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 the international trading system. Because among other things, um, I mean, we've learned, obviously, through the pandemic and, and other events, that 
if we always chase the lowest cost producer, uh, that can end up being a single source. That source may not be the most friendly necessarily, necessarily but is also not necessarily the most resilient. When we have a single source and there's a supply disruption, uh, then you're in trouble unless you have a few other sources. So I think we, we do need to look at all of our many exchanges on trade, uh, services, and investment through a slightly uh, different, maybe more nuanced, more multifaceted lens, perhaps, than, than we have in the past. Dan, uh, one big driver of that globalization you were just talking about is, is the World Trade Organization, which was founded almost 30 years ago. Um, in the United States, but I think it's fair to say also in Europe, there's been some um, uh, concern that the WTO may not be up to date, that its rules need to be reformed, that maybe because uh, technology has changed so much since, since the mid-90s, uh, because as you say, there's uh, issues like the climate and uh, workers' rights are, are considered more and a more important part of uh, the global economy. And of course, China's rise and its, and its state capitalist um, economic model. Um, you know, can we be optimistic about the future of the WTO? Is it, do you think, we, you think reforms can be, can be achieved? And what role do you think the U.S. can and should play in that process? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, the, the WTO being a, a trade organization uh, made up of, of, of a huge percentage of the, of the world's world countries is um, an extraordinarily useful way to organize our trade and to uh, allow an outlet for resolving disputes, for sharing information on what each of us is, is doing. Uh, there's a huge amount of work that goes on in the committees at, at, the, at the WTO. Uh, there's a lot of uh, reporting that gets done from members so that other members know what uh, members are doing with respect to subsidies, with respect to their trade agreements. There's an opportunity, a clearinghouse for discussions. Um, I think one of the areas that we have been pursuing uh, with respect to um, uh, reform of the WTO is you know improving the transparency of the of the process and 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 ensuring that the committee work can uh, can can work can work better um, I think the the you know, two areas where there are challenges and this is not to say the WTO is not critical to resolving the challenges but they are they are challenges um, one is with the, the rise of some of the uh, the, the, the newer economies uh, particularly when it comes to uh, uh, China and some of the non-market economies. Um, it may well be that some of the rules that we negotiated, you know, as long ago as uh, you know, 50, 60, 60 years ago, may not no longer be entirely fit for purpose. I mean, they still serve a huge purpose, but you know, the the uh, the, the world has moved on. You know, technology is different. Uh, the the composition of membership is different, and so we do have to reflect uh, about whether those rules are fully fit for, for purpose. Um, and in particular, uh, obviously, one of the issues has to do with the uh, dispute settlement system and how effectively that system has operated to actually resolve disputes uh, as opposed to uh, you know, processes that can go on for, for over 20 years in the, in the case of some big cases and then result in just retaliation without necessarily uh, quickly resolving disputes. So I think there is, I think, a strong interest and, and effort undertaken to 
um, to figure out what is the best way to resolve disputes and is the current system, is that entirely fit for that purpose? Or do we need to have consultations with the broad range of members, which you know, it's a different composition now than it was decades ago, um, and find a, a, a better way to resolve disputes than we have in the past? So it's obviously critically important. I think we do need to spend uh, a lot of effort making the WTO work for us. Partly as a result of some of the, the things you were discussing um, when it comes to the impact of the pandemic on global trade uh, and, and supply chains, but I think partly also because of some of the um, disappointment with, with the, the effect efficiency or effectiveness of the, of the WTO, you're, you're seeing increasing talk about friend-shoring. Um, it, it, I think this, this concept was made especially prominent not too long ago by Secretary of the Treasury Yellen. Um, so this would be an idea that uh, the U.S. And would trade sort of like-minded partners, essentially uh, reliable partners, uh, partners who can kind of jointly uh, perhaps uh, pursue the same kind of values and interests in the global economy. I wondered what you think of this concept. Um, how how the U.S. and and maybe you know in Germany the EU should define who a friend is uh, when you're talking about global trade. What parts of the global economy should be targeted when you're saying we should we should friendshore our trade? Uh, and and you know as as we discussed, we there are some mechanisms like the like the Trade and Technology Council that also exists. But if you're going to friendshore, do you think you need anything more than that? Would you you know does that is is that an argument for doing uh, a free trade agreement, or on the other hand, is that an argument for doing more coercive things, like together or alone, export controls or, or, or FDI screening, things like that? Yeah, I, th I think um, a, a key to addressing one of the problems we've identified, which is uh, vulnerabilities in our supply chains um, and uh, the resilience of supply chains, um, you obviously need lots of friends. You need lots of you know, countries that you, can, that you feel you can trade with because that is the best way of achieving uh, resilience. Um, ideally, those, those f friends um, are those who, who do share your, your, our values in terms of transparency, in terms of rule of law, in terms of protection for labor rights, in terms of high environmental um, standards. Um, and I think however you arrange... Uh, make arrangements between those friends to incentivize that kind of trade. I think those are the opportunities to 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 look for. Um, so, for instance, in this context of of, of just as an example, the uh, uh, global arrangement on steel and aluminum, where the, aluminum, where the idea is that you want to incentivize trade um, from market-oriented uh, sectors. Um, and also those products that are a low carbon content. Um, and ideally, um, although this may not be the discussion in steel and aluminum, but in other contexts, um, uh, products are produced with respect for, for labor rights. And I think there are a number of ways you can, um, you can try to incentivize that. Um, the discussions that we're having in the global arrangement is, is, is one of those approaches, but there are, there are other things that you, can, that you can do, I think, to um, to facilitate trade with, with any, any other country that, that, that sort of meets those standards, which is not to say you cut off you know, other, other countries, 
but the incentive structure ideally would be set up so that sustainable trade, broadly considered, would be incentivized and non-sustainable trade would be encouraged to become sustainable. Is it fair to say that kind of the traditional path of, 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 of trade policy lowering tariffs could be one way to incentivize that, but that uh, at least, you know, in 2023, we probably need other ways to incentivize um, the kind of trade you're describing? You, you probably need other ways in, in addition to, to tariffs, um, in part because, you know, in general terms, tariffs are not very high. You know, on an average basis in the United States for industrial tariffs, I don't have the numbers at hand, but you're probably talking about one and a half percent average and agricultural products, it's it's, it's three point something percent. Um, So, and obviously they're higher in particular for particular products. I mean, we we have a two and a half percent tariff on most uh, automobiles. Europe has a 10 percent tariff. Okay, well, 10 percent is starting to look like something for certain textile products. Obviously, you do have high tariffs. So it doesn't work universally across the board to focus, I, I don't think, only on tariffs. Uh, but certainly giving tariff preferences through an FTA or, 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 or other arrangements um, is a legitimate way to incentivize the right, uh, the right kind of trade for particular products. Uh, could I just chime in here for, uh, you know, one, one tension potentially is the idea of friendshoring, and at the same time, the recognition in the United States and with its um, kind of industrialized democratic partners, that we are also trying to persuade the so-called global South, whether you like that term or not uh, as a shorthand, um, that we have an offer uh, and a receptiveness to building relationships um, with them, um, in particular in, in when we look at the competition with China. Um, so how does friendshoring fit with the idea that we have a compelling interest as well to, to incorporate the Global South into our you know, updating of the economic software, uh, if you will, on which we operate? Yeah, I think that's a. I mean, that's a really good point because I do. I do think um, one of the things. In fact, I think one of the things that can um, interfere with um, the U.S. and the EU's ability, and EU and and member states like Germany, in particular, for instance, uh, to cooperate together, is the the perceived risk that you may be identifying friends and then peop- then countries that are not friends. And so, uh, you know, friendshoring was not my term in the in this discussion. And I think you 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 probably do need to be focusing on not necessarily which countries are your friends, which countries are not your friends, but rather uh, which which products are sustainable and you should encourage trade. Which practices are worth are, are worth incentivizing? Which practices? Uh, particularly when you get into the area of non-market economy policies and practices, which practices do we, the European U.S. and the European Union, U.S. and Germany, need to collaborate on to try to push back on? And I think it's really, I think it's important to the future of the relationship that we not define these discussions. We stay away from defining these discussions in binary terms as being, for instance, with respect to, to China, it's not a, a binary choice between engagement 
and um, um, what's what's the what's the term that I, I hear hear from from the Europeans a lot, but not from not from the from the from the U.S. Uh, you know, sort of cutting cutting off uh, disengagement from uh, from from a country. So um, it's not a binary choice between engagement and decoupling, uh, and often the discussions that we have with, with Europe, at least in the public rhetoric, you know, often come down to a simplified binary choice between you know, pro, con, uh, engaged, decoupled. And I think we need to be focusing on very specifically on, okay, if there's a particular practice that we think is problematic, that does not fit in with the norms of proper behavior in the global system, whether or not they're specifically disciplined by WTO obligations or not, but if we uh, and the EU and other um, uh, trading partners uh, believe that certain practices, certain approaches, um, certain uh, policies aimed at, at particular high-tech sectors, for instance, if we feel that those fall out, out, out of the norm, those are the things we should collaborate on to try to disincentivize. And it's not a question of any particular country or not. It's a question of the practice or the or the 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 problem the challenge that we have to face and so i think it is um, i think it is important to be uh to be very specific about what um what the challenges are that you're trying to 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 fix if there's a challenge with respect to high-tech medical devices let's fix that problem are there non-market economy uh policies that are problematic let's see if we can address those um I do think that um, that the practice of economic coercion um, is is one that probably uh, is is something that we we do need to 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 focus on. I think the, the 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 countries that we trade with that we get very close to should not be those that engage in economic coercion. I do think that you know the United States, European Union, and and other partners can very constructively collaborate on on issues like that. Well, when we think about uh, practices in, in, in the global economy. You mentioned a couple of occasions already. One of those, which is relates to climate and how you know, how how trade and climate intersect. And you you, you reference the um, USE negotiations um, towards a global arrangement on on sustainable steel and aluminum. Um, there's there's that. Uh, there is uh, the the EU this year is. Uh, bringing online its carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, last year during its G7 presidency, the German government put forward the idea of a climate club. And of course, uh, we also have in this respect the uh, US Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed last um, summer uh, and which has uh, considerable, it includes considerable investments towards decarbonization, but also has raised some hackles uh, because some of its aspects may not be WTO consistent. Um, do, you know, how do you see these? There's, there is a kind of um, a menu of ways to th try to reconcile trade and climate. And, and by the way, there's also, you know, I think longer term, the idea that, that the WTO's rules could be reformed, so there's a better balance there. How do you, how do you, see, what, how do you see the path forward? Yeah. Um Great, great question, and a number of aspects um, to to unpack. Um, I think it, it clearly the the quarter, quarter carbon border adjustment mechanism, CBAM, is uh, you know 
that kind of mechanism is a good way to incentivize uh, sustainable trade, environmentally friendly trade, preventing carbon leakage. Um, but I think we also have to be uh, careful, any, anyone who adopts a measure like that, to make sure that it, in, it encompasses the range of things that other countries do to uh, reduce carbon intensity. There's not one mechanism that works for ev everybody, and it may or may not be that the thing that, that Europe is doing with their emissions trading system and all that, that may not be the precise thing that everybody on the planet can do. And so um, I think it's important that uh, we, European Union and, and, and others, ensure that whatever mechanism they put in place is tolerant of other ways of achieving that same objective and doesn't require as a, a ticket for admission to the market that the trading partner adopt the exact same system as the host country, the European Union or, or the U.S. So I think that, uh, I think that is, that's a, a very important um, aspect of, of incentivizing trade, bilateral or regional trade uh, that, is, that is sustainable. Um, I think the the um, one of the issues with the uh, with the IRA, or one of the, the issues that the IRA raises, is um, I think we all need to be you know the United States, European Union is need to be thinking in in other ways that we can achieve the ultimate goals that we want to achieve. And in this case, it's you know emissions reduction. It's meeting the the, the, the Paris the the, the Paris, Paris commitments. And so that being a top priority, I think we European Union others need to be somewhat tolerant of the processes that other trading partners have to undertake to achieve that great goal. I think you ha you have to back up and and get a uh, get have get a, a bigger picture on uh, on those uh, on those issues. And I think. This goes back to one of my um, one of my earlier points about c cabining off the, the the disputes. I think um, one of the one of the worst things that can can happen potentially is mm -hmm. if we have a disagreement on something like the IRA or other issues um, to get into a situation where that disagreement sucks all the oxygen out of the room for resolving anything else. Mm -hmm. Because when we have when we're so aligned, we, the United States, are so aligned with the European Union and others on labor rights, on uh, environmental goals, on uh, removing unnecessary trade barriers, on um, using the, the domestic tools that we each have to address non-market economy policies and practices. And we have so much that we, that we agree on that we can pursue the common goals on to get to a point where you can't even get to those discussions because you're so wrapped around the axle on disagreements is not a good place to be. So I think it's it's really important or useful for the relationship to be able to um, find where you have a disagreement on a, on a policy uh, uh, approach, um, especially when it comes to some of the newer challenges that, that, that we're facing, that you are able to cabinet off and address it separately and not let it infect all the all the positive things that uh, we have the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. um, so Dan, you know, we've you've talked a little bit about the ways you deal with multiple issues, sometimes contentious issues in a multilateral uh, context or in a 
U.S. to EU context uh, specifically. So let's add another dimension. This is kind of the national dimension. Um, we focus a lot here, of course, on Germany. And so how do you see the, the role of the United States working directly with EU member states, especially significant ones like Germany, largest economy in the European Union, uh, largest population in the EU, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what is the role of the, of the national dimension uh, when the United States looks at, um, at Europe? Uh, are there ways in which we should be, you know, that it should be the same way we talk about the states as laboratories of democracy in this country? Is there a way in which these bilateral relationships are laboratories of new ways of approaching difficult issues or how do you see that yeah no it's a, it's a, it's it's an important now, question don't tell me it's a good question because you've you've praised us too much on our questions today i, I said that well, that was an important question <laughs> <laughs> and it's also a nuanced it's also a nuanced a nuanced question because obviously you know i i I was for for many years at the you know US trade representative's office and in the trade sphere the commission uh, and DG Trade in particular has exclusive confidence on international trade, so yeah. that's our main counterpart. Uh, I think that's the underlying assumption, underlying, uh, of your, course, your, your your question. And so, what about the member states? Uh, you know, it's critically important that we remain really closely tied up with with the with the member states, and if I can say so, especially Germany uh, in particular, um, for a number of reasons. One is, I mean, the Commission is obviously it's it's its own entity. It's in Brussels. But one of the branches of government, if you will, uh, in Brussels are you know, the member states, the council. And so the member states have direct input into what the commission does. And I think it's re really important uh, for us to be talking to the participants in that decision-making process in, in, in Brussels. Um, it's also, in my experience, after you know, 23 years or whatever it was at USTR, that I think it's really important that um, that German officials and other member state officials hear directly from the United States as to what their position is, what their view is on things, what their goals are, what we're trying to achieve, because it's not very useful and often ends up inadvertently, I'm sure, not being accurate to have that those messages filtered through the Commission. You need that direct that direct communication so that there's a full understanding of what it is that we're trying to do and where there is common ground and where there's not common ground. And obviously the, the, the commission has a much broader um, uh, you know, remit representing uh, you know, 20, 27, 27 different, different member states. Um, but there's another aspect which I think is also makes the exchanges with member states uh, even more important, um, which is that as we're facing newer technologies and also facing newer approaches to international trade from non-market economies in, in particular, um, there is a perceived need for new tools to address some of these challenges. And some of these tools are domestic measures, uh, as I said, not necessarily uh, WTO rules, but some domestic measures. and. Increasingly, some of those measures, if you're looking at the range of things, of, of measures that you might want to use, some of those are going to be maybe mixed commission member state competence. Some of those are going to be flat out member state competence. You know, if you start talking about labor, you're talking about the environment, I mean, some aspects even, even of investment screening mm -hmm. 
has this member state uh, competence com component to it. And so that makes it all the more important that you, we be very la lashed up very closely in terms of communication and coordination with the, um, with, with, the, with, the, with, the member, with the member states. Dan, one last question, um, and it's, it's crystal ball time. Um, not that the U.S.-EU relationship is by any means friction-free right now, but I think we, as you mentioned, we put aside some disputes. We've also set up uh, not just the transatlantic, uh, the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council, but also you mentioned the negotiations on steel and aluminum, so some kind of future-oriented cooperative ventures. Um, how would you rate the transatlantic uh, trade relationship right now? Um, and, 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 and if we look to the future, what should be the metric for, you know, for understanding you know, you know, the health of that relationship? I think the, the metric should be um, the degree to which we are able to, to work closely together on things where we have common objectives and where we can, in a very mature way, put aside aspects even of those issues where we may not entirely agree. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have very common objectives on non-market economy policies and practices. Um, there may be some differences in, ter in terms of how you articulate those, uh, maybe more, uh, you know, stronger concern on the part of uh, Europe uh, not to be specifically focusing on China as opposed to practices. But the important thing is that we can put aside those those differences and work on the commonalities. You know, every joint issue that we have, when if it concerns a stakeholder, say for a for an, an industry, a high tech industry, or, um, or or other stakeholder, you know, in every instance we have common objectives because both of our stakeholders want a level playing field in in third market third country markets. Um, but we're also competitors because we have our set of stakeholders that Europeans have theirs, and ultimately we're going to be competing. So the important thing is not to avoid cooperation because you're probably going to be competing in that market, but be able to uh, distinguish those things that you have in common so you can, uh, you can work for opening that foreign market, for instance, um, recognizing that once the market is, o is open, then we are then we are going to be uh, to be competing. So I think um, you know the, the the more the more we show that we're working together on individual measures that that we have and we can coordinate those measures to say push back on non-market economy policies and practices. You know the EU has its anti-coercion instrument, its foreign subsidies instrument, international procurement instrument. We have our own tools. The extent to which we can not judge each other's tools. Not say you know United States, you should not be using this tool, or us telling Europe, no, you should not be using that tool, but saying, okay, we're going to work together in uh, in pursuing the objective sought by the tool, and kind of put aside for the moment the disagreements over the tools. I think that is going to be uh, increasingly the the measure of a mature relationship, and and ones that one that allows us to cooperate as 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 fully as we can. Mm -hmm. Well, Dan, you've been kind in describing some of our questions as good or important, um, but I want to thank nuanced, you. Also nuanced. Uh, nuanced. But I want to thank you for your uh, thoughtful, uh, thoughtful and uh, frank uh, answers. I mean, we've heard a lot in the course of this half hour uh, about 
the ways in which we should deal with uh, things like trade and climate, which were not integrated into things like the WTO um, at their creation, how we adjust to new challenges, um, how we avoid um, the sort of binary uh, categorizations uh, and uh, talk not about just who your friends are, but how you de-risk, um, how you ensure resiliency in our trading relationships. And, um, and so I want to thank you for, uh, uh, for that. And uh, we look forward to keeping in, in contact because I'm sure we have much more to hear and learn from you. Well, thanks very much. And I learned quite a lot, too. Thanks to you, Jeff, and, and, and Peter, and to AICGS for inviting me here this afternoon. It was great fun. Dan, not just retired, Mulaney. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for being with us. And we'll look forward to having all of our listeners with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.